0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. My remarks tonight are going to be about the Middle Ages in Western Europe, but they're also going to be about the place that they occupy in large-scale, long-term historical narratives. And by that, I mean the sorts of narratives about change over centuries that tend to be either stated or unstated core of popular conceptions of historical change. To some extent, they're the basic bedrock or the framework also of textbook historical accounts of the sweep of history over, say, the past half millennium or even, uh, indeed, last millennium. But most of all, they constitute a kind of polemical image that's really more about using a sometimes radically distorted view of the past in order to defend ideas or to further certain uh, agendas in the present. So I'm not only going to be talking about the Western Middle Ages, but also about the uses and abuses of images of the Middle Ages for ideological purposes in the present. One of the, this is just kind of introductory side note, one of the uh, responsibilities of professional historians is to try to guard against this sort of use and abuse of the past, to call out the distortions, the polemical uses of history. And we do that based on years of reading and writing and analyzing and thinking and debating and arguing about it. Because you can be sure that if uh, professional historians don't take the time to call out these kinds of uh, abuses, nobody else is going to, that's for sure. Nobody else has the, the time or the, the, the professional training to do so. One of the things I'd like you to take away from my, my talk this evening, apart from the specifics related to the Middle Ages, is that the actual past, the actual lived human past in every time and place, the Middle Ages is only one example, was almost always way more complex, messy, and difficult to generalize about than the way in which it's usually portrayed in popular images, the way that it's depicted in textbooks, whether those depictions and images are positive or negative. All right then, the basic structure of my comments uh, for this evening will be as follows. First of all, I'm gonna talk about the, the most common dominant image uh, with respect to the, the Western or the Latin Middle Ages, namely that sees the Middle Ages fundamentally as a backward, superstitious, ignorant, oppressive an intellectually stagnant era because of the religious pervasiveness uh, of the Catholic Church, the period between the fall of the Roman Empire and the beginning of modernity with the Renaissance in the 14th and the 15th centuries, followed by the Reformation in the 16th century, then the Enlightenment in the 17th and the 18th, dominated, as I said, the, the view of the Middle Ages by the purportedly ill influence of the Catholic Church and its clergy. That is, this is the Middle Ages seen essentially as the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages that had to be cast off and left behind before the progress of the modern era could begin. In short, the basic attitude toward the Middle Ages, good riddance, right? I'm going to elaborate a bit on uh, this image and then say a few more things about what's wrong with it. Secondly, after that, I'm going to talk about a, a less common but a kind of minority Catholic counter image that sees the Western of the Latin Middle Ages uh, as, as fundamentally as a, a period of great faith and piety, a world characterized by an organic, harmonious society, a society permeated by common beliefs and values rooted in the Catholic Church, an ordered world in which life was overwhelmingly simpler, more meaningful, more secure than it has become in the modern era. In other words, here the Middle Ages are seen fundamentally as a golden age that has been lost through the regrettable rejections of the church by the Reformation, the Enlightenment, modern philosophy, and modern institutions. Very often with this view, there's a sense of the Middle Ages that is accompanied by a kind of nostalgic yearning, a nostalgia for a a purportedly better bygone world that has been tragically lost. I'll say a little more about this image of the Middle Ages as well, this Catholic counter image. And then at the end of my talk, I'm going to offer some kind of analytical reflections about what I think is going on with the use and abuse of images like these, concentrating especially on the dominant uh, view in the wider society, namely the Middle Ages as the Dark Ages. How is this being employed? How is it used in the service of current commitments and causes that are linked to a basic binary, long-term historical narrative that's meant to validate and justify the present rather than to try to understand medieval men and women, medieval people and their world in ways that they would recognize. First of all then, the, the question about the Middle Ages, a dark age of superstitious backwardness. Not a single medieval historian that I know, and I know quite a lot of them, would ever regard the Middle Ages as the dark ages and yet this image and stereotype persists. Despite the tracing of the persistent, albeit diminished influence of ancient Roman imperial institutions, practices and patterns of life for centuries after the classic date of the fall of Rome in 476, in this portrayal, it's it's almost as if society and culture fell into a sinkhole for a millennium with little if anything to admire and much if not everything to criticize and condemn. So what are some of the main features of this image? The church, by the church is almost always meant the clergy, very common, also, side note, also common among Catholics, refer kind of uh, in a sort of way to the medieval church or to the church in general, forgetting about the fact the overwhelming uh, majority of members of the church is the laity in every time and place. But anyway, I digress. In the Middle Ages, in this view, the church, that is the clergy, supposedly controlled everything, It's basically like a Soviet-style totalitarianism projected back in time. Invariably, you will find the Inquisition, always with a capital I, emphasized here. Technology, in this view, utterly primitive, didn't change much for hundreds of years. Almost everyone led a life of endemic, crushing poverty. What little wealth there was, was radically unequal in its distribution, and it was controlled by a handful of elites, rulers, aristocratic, Uh, members of the aristocracy, ecclesiastical prelates. Classical learning in this image was lost, even actively suppressed by the church, again, the clergy, which sought to keep ordinary people ignorant. The church was anti-intellectual in principle and in practice, opposed to science and knowledge, and perfectly fine with widespread superstition. Now, I'm sure there are many people in this room that know already some if not many of the inadequacies with this this image, I wanna talk a little bit about them. Because of, let's just start with uh, sort of realities of communication, technology, and travel. Because of the limitations on all of those in the period of the Middle Ages, there was absolutely no way for the church or any other institution for that matter to exercise anything remotely like the control of modern democratic states this is true in the ancient world, it's true in the medieval world, it's true in the early modern period, in the 17th and the 18th centuries as well. The United States and other western democracies today are infinitely more surveillance, regulatory, and invasive than the medieval church ever was, even at the height of its power and influence, let's say during the pontificate of Innocent III, at the end of the 12th, beginning of the 13th century. In fact, the vast majority of human life in all of its aspects was much more local, more particular, more shaped by specific communities than in the world of modern nation states. And this continued to be the case for long after the Middle Ages. The major major watershed here really, the kind of big caesura that separates us from the the world of, of human beings prior, didn't really happen until the 19th century. And a side note here too on the Inquisition. There were in the Middle Ages inquisitorial practices commissioned in an ad hoc way by individual bishops in their diocese, including the Bishop of Rome, starting in the 12th century, but there was no established standing institution called the Inquisition in the Middle Ages, didn't exist. It's an image meant to evoke a visceral emotional reaction. There's the formation of the Spanish Inquisition in the late 15th century. There is the Roman Inquisition that is reorganized in the middle of the 16th century. And incidentally, in the 16th century, the Roman Inquisition was the most, and legal scholars will say this, it has nothing to do with being Catholic or not. It was the most sophisticated and progressive as far as its procedures, its use of evidence, and so forth in Europe at the time, certainly compared to state judicial procedures that were contemporaneous with it. Technology was primitive compared to today. Yeah, sure. Sure but then technology in the 19th century or even before the Second World War was primitive compared to today. It really depends on what one's comparison is. Anyone though, who fairly considers, for example, the building techniques that were used to construct medieval cathedrals, or the practices and the processes required to turn raw wool and linen and silk into often astonishing and beautiful fabrics, or the virtuosity that was demanded in hand paper-making, or glass blowing, or metalworking, or the creation and use of movable type in the printing press, another medieval invention from the 1450s, Johannes Gutenberg and Mainz in Germany. These are just a few examples that show that one can't really plausibly claim that medieval technology was primitive. And technology can only be applied to knowledge of the natural world if one has that knowledge. And if you don't have the knowledge, you can't apply the technology. That's the same today as it was in the Middle Ages or any other period. And considering what was known, medieval builders, craftsmen, artisans, artists, and printers did impressively well. It's absolutely not the case that the Middle Ages was a static or stagnant world without change. Western Europe by say 1500 had been dramatically altered in terms of its built environment, its existing technologies, its economic practices, and urbanization, compared to, for example, when Charlemagne was crowned the Holy Roman Emperor in the year 800. Medieval human lives at all social levels, rich and poor, were closely tied to a rural agricultural cycle. When harvest was good, there was enough for everyone, but when they weren't, peasants could face starvation. It was a materially austere world, to be sure, for most people. But this is not distinctive of or unique to the Middle Ages. It remained true of Western Europe deep into the 19th century, long past the Enlightenment and into the period of industrialization. Moreover, starting with the commercial revolution of the 11th century, a major upturn throughout, starting in Italy and spreading northward, an upturn in trade, in the growth of cities, the increase in population, a monetization of economic exchange, and a growth in prosperity. Which that, Incidentally, that uh, prosperity increased after the cataclysm of the Black Death in the middle of the 14th century. Because wealth was spread among so many fewer people, among those who survived, the period from about 1350 to 1450 was actually among the best for ordinary folk, Uh, during the Middle Ages. As for the condemnation uh, of the radical inequalities of wealth, this argument had maybe a bit more plausibility by way of contrast with our own times before the last 40 years of neoliberalism. For example, in Florence in 1427, 10% of the population owned 68% of the wealth. Today in the United States, 1% of the population owns over 50% of the wealth. So the current distribution of wealth in the United States now is significantly more unequal than it was in late medieval Europe. So which society was or is more unjust in terms of its distribution of resources? Much of the inheritance of the classical world, classical learning was lost in the centuries after the fall of the Roman Empire. But what remained and was known was highly valued. Whether in Benedictine monasteries from the sixth century on or in cathedral schools and universities, another medieval invention, with the recovery of Aristotle starting in the 12th and the 13th centuries. Medieval intellectuals were keen to make use of the best knowledge that they had. So for example, they made use of the Aristotelian corpus once it was recovered, and that's why they made it the basis for university education throughout Western Europe starting in the 13th century. It's a mistake to think about the Renaissance as a separate period It's a name for a series of cultural and intellectual trends in the late Middle Ages, including Renaissance humanism, starting in Italy in the late 13th and 14th centuries, spreading throughout Europe by the 15th, augmenting, enriching, sometimes clashing with scholasticism. But Renaissance humanism absolutely was not some anti-Christian movement of recovering ancient learning you know a, a bygone greco-roman pagan world to be used against the church against christian practice this was a view to some extent of a, a great swiss historian of the 19th century jakob Burkhardt. rather what's going on with humanism in the l- late middle ages is the use of say ciceronian rhetoric or neoplatonic thought or the knowledge of greek and hebrew in order to try to renew to try to renew the church and Christian practice, especially in Northern Europe. We see this from the very end of the 15th and into the early 16th century. It's a movement associated above all with Erasmus. The center for Renaissance humanism by the middle of the 15th century is nothing other than the papal court in the restored papacy after the conciliar disruptions of the early 15th century. Monasteries, were crucial nurseries of Renaissance humanism in Germany as well as in Italy in the 15th century. In the Middle Ages, the most valued knowledge was not knowledge of ancient texts or authors, however, nor was it knowledge of the natural world. It was knowledge of God's self-revelation in history, above all in the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Christ as it had been handed down That's the meaning of tradition, after all. By and through the church, above all, through understanding, interpreting, teaching, and endeavoring to live out what was conveyed in Scripture. All other knowledge was supposed to serve the participation of all baptized Christians that came from the firsthand knowledge of practicing the virtues in imitation of Christ in community. That's a kind of foretaste a foretaste of the hope of eternal life. All other knowledge properly understood had a place in the overall scheme, but it was supposed to remain subordinate to the knowledge that mattered most. It is frankly absurd to regard the medieval church as opposed to learning, opposed to knowledge, or opposed to science, if by science, bit of an anachronistic term applied to the Middle Ages, but let's say knowledge of the natural world or natural philosophy. Nobody who actually reads medieval theology or philosophy or political thought could think this, could think that there was a kind of anti-intellectual bent to the to, uh, medieval um, uh, cultural elites or intellectuals, but it's a view that is very often little more than a kind of projected extension of anti-religious prejudice and the presumptive incompatibility between religion and science. Uh, really... Uh, uh, an invented notion from the late 19th century that there has always been uh, an eternal opposition between religion and science on the one hand, reason and, and real philosophy on the other. This religion versus science paradigm picture is a polemical invention. And sadly, because so few Americans know enough history to know any better, they fall for the historical myths of the polemics of the new atheists and really quite appalling, um, just absolutely ignoramus views of the past, like Steven Pinker, for example. Yeah, of course, they sell lots of books, but so what? I mean, all that means is lots of people uh, buy the books and don't know any better. Um, A really good book to read on this, if you're you're interested, I highly recommend um, the book by Peter Harrison called The Territories of Science and Religion which is really about how what we call science and what we call religion has been related to one another really since the ancient world all the way up to the present. And despite the enormous scope, it's a rather accommodatingly slender volume of a couple hundred pages. I also recommend a a book I reviewed recently, absolutely wonderful book by um, uh, a Cambridge medieval historian of science, Seb Falk is his name, F-A-L-K. The title of the book is The Light Ages, The Surprising Story of Medieval Science, published by Norton last year, what he does is use the essentially completely unknown Benedictine monastic astronomer from England, a guy named John of Westwick. Almost no surviving traces. It's an incredible kind of uh, research detective story, among other things. But he uses this particular almost unknown Benedictine astronomer to reconstruct not only medieval astronomy and its place within medieval science, but also the place of those within the medieval Christian worldview. Absolutely marvelous book, The Light Ages. Okay, I could go on. I'm happy to take questions about uh, any of these uh, points if if anybody wants to, but I'm gonna move on now. Move on now to uh, the reverse view. What about the reverse uh, picture? If the Middle Ages, as an era of, of superstitious backwardness, does not hold up, which it certainly doesn't, it's not supported by fair consideration or a responsible interpretation of the evidence uh, that we have, what about the opposite view, which has traditionally had, and, and as I mentioned earlier, still has uh, its supporters among some Catholics? as it did among many 19th century romantics, for example, capital R romantics, um, and also among certain critics of the modern world as such. Namely, the idea that the Middle Ages was in some serious way a golden age of Catholic harmony. I mean, as I just say from the outset, as a Catholic, I wish that was true. Sadly, we have a lot of evidence. Now, some of the main features of this image include the idea that in contrast to modern chaos, confusion, disruption, social dislocation, the Middle Ages was an era in which Christianity infused and ordered all of human life, in which society was an organic whole, like St. Paul's metaphor of the body, in which all the parts cooperate for the sake of the social body and the common good, from 1 Corinthians 12. This is what the Latin Middle Ages its thought was like an actual practice. In place of the secular self-assertion and relativistic individualism of the modern world, in this view, the Latin Middle Ages was a time when everybody knew and accepted their place. And the church's authority provided clear lines of conduct, shared practices and interactions among institutions. There were fewer problems, fewer uncertainties and greater human fulfillment. What's wrong with this picture? Just like the Dark Ages cartoon and the way that it ignores evidence that contravenes its depiction of the Middle Ages, so too does the Golden Age cartoon do likewise. The Middle Ages did not have modern forms of confusion, disruption, and social dislocation. Of course, how could it? It wasn't modern. But it certainly had its own forms. Incredibly high levels of violence in everyday life. Feuds, antagonisms, public fights, recurrent subsistence crises in food production, from which people starve to death, in the Great Famine, for example, in Northern Europe, the 13-teens and early 1320s, the Black Death of the middle of the 14th century, which killed at least one-third, and recent evidence pretty conclusively shows in some areas of Europe over half of the population died. Imagine if COVID had taken out half the United States' population. In addition, a lack of knowledge of uh, to a lack of knowledge of the, of the natural world at the time, right, which leads people at the time to think that they're being punished directly by God, or that God was vengefully capricious in who he struck down and who he didn't, or that simply led to confusion and anxiety in other ways. There are examples of unsettling social disruption earlier in the Middle Ages too. For example, the first response of most serious dedicated Christians to the 11th century commercial revolution, that kind of increase in the pace of urbanization and economic life, the basic response initially is run for the hills. What we basically have is an imitation of the Egyptian Desert Fathers from the third and the fourth centuries with people like Peter Damian becoming hermits. Get away from the city get away from the scary, disruptive, new phenomena. In the 12th century, as an, in some ways as a kind of extension of this, we have the formation of the new contemplative monastic orders, the Carthusians, the Cistercians, the Premonstratensians. They're a reaction to rapid change, dislocation, confusion with respect to the kinds of economic transformations that are producing social anxiety and political conflicts. Nothing, if, if, if you don't remember anything else from my talk about the Middle Ages, um, and particularly with respect to this, this uh, Golden Age Catholic counter image, it is never confuse ideals with lived realities. Never confuse prescriptions with the way things actually were. This is an important idea to keep in mind with respect to any historical period or indeed with respect to our current society. Actual medieval society was not a social, political, cultural, and economic externalization of the beautifully ordered thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. It was filled with sins and sinners of all sorts, with avarice and greed, with envy and pride, with anger and hatred, competition, resentment, and selfishness. One of the reasons why medieval saints stand out is because they were as rare in the Middle Ages as they are now. And indeed, there are many examples of what can only be fairly regarded as superstitious practice even by the church's own standards. So many, many ways in which, for example, the church is really regarded as a kind of reservoir of magic power. People doing things like stealing consecrated hosts, grinding them up and putting them on their crops as fertilizer because man, if anything is powerful, it's certainly gonna be the body of Christ. And we've had a drought lately, so you know, let's go for it. There are so many examples of things like that. Nor should we make the mistake of thinking that the description of sins and sinners applies only to the laity, not to the clergy, or perhaps to some parish clergy, but not also to members of the religious orders as if everyone, or even most men and women who took vows of poverty actually lived their vows of poverty. One of the biggest problems in the Middle Ages is that it's really hard to stay poor because wealthy laity keep giving money to members of religious orders that take vows of poverty, which makes those religious orders wealthy and gives them the conundrum of what are they gonna do with their wealth. Again, the difference between ideals and realities. The Middle Ages are absolutely filled with endemic complaints about the clergy and members of religious orders, certainly from no later than the 11th century on. The most common complaint against the clergy in the Middle Ages, and this increases as the Middle Ages go on, say, between the 12th and the 15th centuries, the most common complaint is about their greed. They're always trying to squeeze the laity for more, both in the religious orders and among parish clergy, and the higher up one goes in the hierarchy, the greater uh, is, are the complaints. There are many famous, notorious examples at the papal court in the 14th century when the papacy is, is in Avignon for se- in southern France for several centuries, and also in late 15th and early 16th century Rome. So, for example, Sixtus IV, a Franciscan pope, right? Franciscan pope in the late 15th century. His coronation tiara, papal tiara, right? The extraordinary uh, headwear of, of the popes. In the early 1470s, his, that, that one piece was so bejeweled and so intricately worked with gold, it cost one-third of the annual papal income. Leo X in the 15-teens more than doubled the number of church offices for sale, with more than 2,100. Of course, you're not supposed to do that. That's simony. Ah, papal dispensation. Absolutely nasty struggles between parish clergy, members of religious orders, over jurisdiction, over privileges, you name it. Within religious orders, extraordinary struggles in the 14th and the 15th into the 16th centuries. Those who want to reform versus those who don't. The observant movement isn't welcomed by all members of the Benedictines or the Dominicans or the Franciscans or the Augustinians in their respective orders. What it does is create bitter divisions within those orders and most deeply of all, I'm sure many of you know, within the Franciscans themselves, the spiritual Franciscans in the 13th century after the the death of St. Francis. So in different ways, in different places over time, the Middle Ages is riven with all kinds of tensions, contestations, and conflicts. They are different kinds of conflicts, different kinds of problems from those that are characteristic of the modern era But one doesn't have to read very much serious history about the Middle Ages to learn that this was an era that is replete with many difficulties. And nowhere more obviously was this the case or more commented upon from the 11th through the 15th centuries than within the church itself. Constant calls for reform, from Bernard of Clairvaux in the 12th century, Francis of Assisi in the 13th century, Catherine of Siena in the 14th century, Jean Gerson in the 15th century, to name only a few. All of these people, long before an Augustinian friar named Martin Luther ever appears on the scene. So the interim conclusion, the interim conclusion to be drawn is that neither of these kind of mirror image caricatures of the Middle Ages is near the mark, even though both contain some elements of truth. Based on surviving sources, our best interpretations of trying to make sense of the evidence that we have. This was a deeply hierarchical society. It was one that was pervaded by Christian ideals, assumptions, institutions, but it was not one, It was not a society in which these ideals were fully or always even very obviously realized or put into practice. And it was a world of material scarcity, of natural vulnerability, but not one that for its time and based on what was known was technologically stunted or anti-intellectual, even though the vast majority of the population was indeed illiterate, had no formal education at all. Again, let's think about that rural agricultural world. This is a world peopled mostly by agricultural laborers and who would have done the work necessary to produce the food for the survival of the population as a whole if they'd all been studying instead. You need a lot of steady, reliable agricultural surplus sustained year after year in order to even aspire to something like universal education. That's why we don't see it until the 19th century. The Middle Ages is best understood on the terms of its own protagonists, the people who lived at the time from the 6th through the 15th centuries, allowing for and acknowledging vast differences between, say, Iceland and Sicily, between England and Italy, and recognizing many changes and developments over time. And of course, I mean, nothing stops us, nothing prevents us from applying our own values, beliefs, commitments to the Middle Ages, or or to any other historical period or civilization for that matter. But when we do that, we should just be prepared in advance to have reflected back to us our own values, beliefs, commitments. It won't tell us anything about medieval men and women, what mattered to them, what it was like to live then, what human life and its experiences and challenges meant to them. To try to get at that, we have to do at least two things. First, we have to be sufficiently aware of what our own beliefs, values, and commitments are, and then we have to do our best to discipline ourselves to set those aside when we're trying to understand the Middle Ages or Medieval Christianity or the Medieval Church. And until and unless we're willing and able to do that, we won't and we can't be able to move toward a genuinely historical understanding of the Middle Ages. Now, I want to finish up here with just a few remarks at the end uh, about what I think is really going on with the use of these kinds of of images of the Middle Ages. I want to conclude by saying something more about that because I think it's important to take it away, especially with respect to the Middle Ages and how they function in polemical, long-term narratives that actually reflect modern or contemporary values and commitments. Because the negative dismissive caricature of the Middle Ages as the Dark Ages is much more common and very often linked to anti-Catholicism, I'm going to concentrate on that. Now, to grow up in the early 21st century in the United States or, or in Canada or in a Western European country is to absorb almost really by a kind of cultural osmosis without realizing it consciously a basic narrative with respect to change over the long term what French historians call le longue durée. That narrative is built on a basic binary about the the last half millennium or millennium that runs something like this. Medieval, backward, oppressive, superstitious, religious, bad. Modern, enlightened, liberated, rational, secular, good. That's it. That is the fundamental foundation. The narrative from medieval to modern culminating in us is accordingly set up to be a narrative of progress about how superstitious, oppressed, benighted and primitively religious medieval Europeans struggling to survive as village peasants eventually developed and progressed into enlightened, liberated, autonomous, secular modern Westerners equipped with smartphones and globally connected via Facebook, Twitter and Snapchat. We're supposed to stick to the basic binary that underlies the narrative of progress, even if we nuance it, or concede that, well, yeah, I guess you got to admit, Chartres Cathedral is pretty, pretty beautiful, and medieval ivory and gold uh, reliquaries are kind of impressive, and Aquinas was pretty smart. But what we're not supposed to do is question the basic binary or the narratives that underlie it. Or, for example, the conflation that has occurred since the 17th century of divine providence, understood in Christian terms, with material progress, understood in secular terms. The basic message is that the world is getting better and better, and anyone who doubts it should look all around at all our cool stuff and the amazing trips we can go on if we have enough money the medical innovations that prolong life more and more, how great it is to live in a world where we can believe whatever we want and buy as much as we want of whatever we want and do as we please without caring about anyone else. It's not surprising that we are all enculturated into this view of history, this view of change over time, before we ever take a history class or read a history book. It's the cultural air we breathe. And it's also the result of centuries of cultural layering and reinforcement that has denigrated and depended on a criticism and a dismissal of the Middle Ages in order to make life since then look the better and more progressive by contrast. Whether we're talking about the Renaissance, from the Renaissance comes that tripartite scheme of history that invented the term Middle Ages as a low ebb of human achievement or lack thereof between the heights of ancient and modern times the Protestant Reformation, with the rediscovery of the gospel after centuries of medieval pagan philosophy, clerical manipulation, and supposedly unbiblical non-Christian teaching. The Enlightenment, suddenly reason appears on the stage for the first time ever in human history as the basis for morality, political life, society, and prosperity after centuries of medieval ignorance, the age of religious wars in the Reformation era. 19th century industrialization and scientism, the understanding of nature via science applied through technology leads to human enjoyment and happiness in contrast to those poor, benighted people of the Middle Ages in their poverty and suffering. And finally, in the case of the United States, American individualism, religious freedom and self-determination as an extension a final historical realization of the Protestant Reformation, determining for yourself what's true for you against the tyranny of medieval popery. The image of the Middle Ages that's most common today is this negative caricature. It's an amalgam of rehashed and repeated rejections that intersect and reinforce one another that have been at work in one way or another since the 15th century. So it's no wonder that they're still powerful and are constantly recycled. When the image is invoked, it's usually with a polemical intent. For example, to trumpet modern individual freedom and self-determination as good in contrast to the Middle Ages when everyone was supposed to believe the same thing and was punished when they didn't. Low marks for diversity or, for example, to ooh and ah about our incredible technology and capacity to master nature as good in contrast to the Middle Ages when people were pitifully at the mercy of natural forces they couldn't control or, for example, to remind ourselves about how blessed we are to have separation of church and state and religion as a private, personal matter in a secular public sphere, rather than religion as an organizing principle of public culture and society. The Middle Ages here is functioning as a foil to defend values like modern liberalism, self-determination, secularism and materialism, beliefs and ideologies like secularism and scientism and capitalist consumerism, and commitments to the power of technology and capitalist acquisitiveness as transformative of human lives, supposedly always for the better. One would have thought that the history of the world in the 20th century, with an estimated 190 million people killed in its brutal recurrent wars and genocides, would have been sufficient to disabuse more people of naive narratives of historical progress. And the basic binary that lies underneath it But not just the 20th century. Today, you'd think, for example, that the combination of global warming, recurrent wars, an estimated 80 million current refugees in the world, the millions of lives being destroyed through human trafficking, the resurgence of authoritarian politics, and our own current national political situation would be sufficient to inspire more nuanced views of change over time and more differentiated assessments of what different historical periods have done well and what they've done less well, including not only the modern era and our own times, but also the Middle Ages. They weren't all darkness, and our times are far from all goodness and light. Thank you. So I think we have a few moments for questions. Go ahead. What do you think the Middle Ages did best? What do I think it did best? I think that notwithstanding the exaggeration in the Golden Age cartoon about the Middle Ages as a period of harmony and concordance, let's say, I think that the common shared framework regarding the most fundamental questions about human life provided a kind of a societal foundation, as it were. So that is extraordinarily different from the kind of heterogeneous ideological um, contention that is absolutely pervasive in our society today. I and mean, we see a particular expression of that in the United States, right? But it can take many, many different forms. So that for, I'll give an example. Medieval philosophers and theologians just went at one another hammer and tong. I mean, these guys really, <laughs> they, they, they pulled no punches in their disputations and gave as well as they got and everything else. But but it's a a debate that's done within a framework. It's done within a framework of a common understanding of what matters in human life, what is is fundamentally true in terms of values, in terms of norms, in terms of the kinds of relationships that people ought to have. So I suppose it's, it's more in the domain of shared ideals, imperfectly realized, that I think the Middle Ages did way better than what we have now. I was hoping that you could say a little bit more about uh, the, we'll say medieval society rather than looking at specifically at the church's approach to education, specifically how it you learning and pedagogy and like what, who was it that, uh, who was it that education was geared towards that, was it kind of a more modern understanding where, you know, education is something for everyone, or did it have a different understanding of, you know, mm-hmm. who, uh, who should, uh, who should Right. Thanks. It's um, it extru- definitely not an understanding of, of education for everyone. I mean, as I mentioned, you, there, it's not. It- Did you repeat the question? Yeah, sorry. The, que- the question is about the character of medieval society in relationship to medieval education and whether in, 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 in the Middle Ages there were views of that who should be educated, who, who was in charge and, 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 and how it ought to be pursued. Is that a fair yes. characterization? Okay. Absolutely not a notion of, you know, educating everyone. I mean, in in some, in certain respects, in in somewhat ironic ways, um, education in the Middle Ages, for all of the uh, emphasis on kind of the ideal of contemplation and all that, you know, stuff, education in the Middle Ages is um, seen from one perspective extraordinarily pragmatic in its goals, I mean, in other words, you 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 gain a basic measure of literacy to the extent and insofar and in, in the idiom that you need to. So, if you are the son of, well, first of all, let's set aside, it, with, with the exception of some female religious and a tiniest handful of a, a handful of, of women who happen to be members of aristocratic households, but we're talking minuscule. Women are not being educated. That's just a giving. Among men, if you're, the, if you're the son, say, of a merchant in an Italian city, you need numerate literacy up to the point that you're going to be able to run the business, right, if you inherit it or something like that. Um, somebody who is going to be or, or aspires to be employed or has the connections in order to have the possibility to be employed, let's say, in one or another um, city council type function or somewhere in, a, in, an, in an urban institutional setting, has to acquire vernacular literacy up to a certain point. If you're going to be involved in writing correspondence with people from other different vernacular linguistic territories, well, then you've got to know Latin, but only then. If you want to be a parish priest, you you have to know at least enough Latin to be able to say the Mass. But it's not until the later Middle Ages that even a Minority of parish priests are really being educated in a sort of substantive way. Most parish priests become priests through a kind of apprenticeship system, and um, you have to be able to to know and pronounce the Latin. But this is a whole. There's a whole genre of jokes about uh, medieval parish priests and the ones that you know mumble their Latin, don't know what they're saying, mix up the, the stuff, and so so. But the but the point is a very a, tiny, tiny percentage of people become genuinely uh, learned. And the reason that they do is usually to fulfill one or another social role. I mean, even if we think about medieval universities, right, in terms of, so there are only a couple of universities um, that have all four uh, of the the, sort of the main divisions within them. They have, you know, the Faculty of Arts, then they've got medicine, they've got law, and they've got theology. Actually, Oxford and Paris, early on, are the only two that, that have all four. But why do you study law? Like today, become a lawyer. Why do, you, why do you study theology? Not to become a priest, but to become a teacher of theology in a university, usually. A few exceptions. Also study law to be a canon lawyer, right? church's law. And why do you study medicine? Like today, in order to be a physician, so there's a kind of pragmatic orientation, a vocational orientation, if you will, even to even to medieval university education. This is partly what I mean. I mean, I can remember as a student, or you know, sometimes you know, when I, when I was younger, the kind of there's a tendency to want to kind of idealize and uh, fuzzify, you know, medieval education and learning like it's all supposed to culminate right, in a, in, in, for, for people in general in a kind of Thomistic contemplative vision of, of God. Well, hardly for anybody, for some contemplative members of religious orders, yeah, but no, not really otherwise. Um, but you can understand, see why the, the, the religious orders are the core and the bastion of m- much learning for a very long time, because of the importance of Scripture and the whole commentarial tradition from the church fathers through the earlier monastic writers and so forth, to understand that most important form of knowledge, the knowledge of God's self-revelation that goes back to Scripture and and what's been commented on it. And for that, you really do need need to know Latin if you're going to do it for real. Thank you everyone so much for being here. Thank you especially Dr. Gregory for coming to join us.